Welcome back, everybody. I am really excited for today's episode. We have with us Natalie Dean, a biostatistician at UF specializing in infectious diseases and vaccines, you know, completely irrelevant fields. Over the past year, she has served as a celebrity championing the dissemination of COVID knowledge, being cited as an expert on tens of thousands of news articles, writing op-eds for the Washington Post and the New York Times, and amassing a following of over 100,000 followers on Twitter. Dr. Dean, it is such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, great. Thanks for that nice introduction. Rakan, you want to get started? Yeah, sure. So I know before we started this, we had a few trials of trying to get this podcast started, and it was always brought to a halt by something known as COVID-19. So it was only appropriate to have uh, the biggest expert, I think, especially at the University of Florida, come and speak to us about this. Um, so I guess to get the ball rolling, we want to get a little bit more about your personal history. How did you get into this field? What does your research focus on as of late? What are you looking towards in the future right now? So just a little bit more about like how, how you got started with all of this. Yeah, so my PhD is in biostatistics and I've always been interested in infectious disease research, specifically started out very interested in HIV. Um, and then when I moved here to Gainesville to the University of Florida, I started working with uh, leading expert, Professor Ira Longini. And his specialty is infectious diseases and specifically emerging infectious diseases. And when I arrived um, in 2014, that was during the Ebola um, epidemic in West Africa. And so I was able to get involved in a clinical trial there looking at a vaccine for Ebola. And that trial ended up being very successful. And so since then, we've been working with the WHO and other research groups thinking about how do we evaluate vaccines during public health emergencies. And so here we are in a big public health emergency and everyone's scrambling to apply. Some of the lessons we've learned about how to quickly get vaccines up and running and out to the public. That's great. And obviously this is so relevant to everyone right now and everyone has so many burning questions about COVID. So we wanted to get to some of those pressing things that people really want to know from an expert. So one of the things that we got when we were polling our family and friends about what they would most like to ask a COVID expert was about transmission. So can you still infect people if you're vaccinated? How does that compare to your transmission rates if you've already had COVID? What can you tell us about how this can also turn into herd immunity and when we'll know if this is over and when we can start going back to normal? Yeah, those are excellent questions and certainly on the top of everyone's minds right now. And so what we know from the large phase three clinical trials that were used to um, authorize the vaccine is that the vaccines work very well at preventing disease. And so that's the primary public health burden is we want to keep people from getting sick, particularly keep people from getting so sick they need to be hospitalized. The trials did not look at infection, which is a different endpoint. So infection being everything, including people who have asymptomatic infection. So it doesn't directly give us uh, an estimate of how well these vaccines can reduce transmission. But we are getting a little bit of data that's helping us fill in some of the gaps. Um, we're getting some preliminary data from the trials that's showing that in addition to the big benefit that we see in preventing disease, there's also a smaller but still substantial benefit in preventing infection, maybe around a half to two thirds, maybe even a little bit higher, somewhere in that neighborhood. And that, so that's one way that we get closer to um, herd immunity levels is that if I'm less likely to become infected become, because I'm vaccinated, I'm less likely to infect others. And that's one way that we can drive numbers down overall. 
But there's another way that vaccines can make you less infectious. So maybe you're still infected, but your viral load is lower or you're not sick for as long. Or, or and we have some evidence from other sources that people who never develop symptoms do seem to be less infectious to others. So if the vaccines work by preventing symptoms, maybe it's sort of containing the virus to one part or it's limiting the amount of virus such that you're less likely to infect others. So we have a lot of good reasons to be optimistic that the, the vaccines are um, doing quite a lot to reduce transmission. We just don't know exactly how much. There are a lot of questions too that people are having, especially with there being so many different kinds of vaccines too, and a lot of trials going on, a lot of research like Moderna, Pfizer, Sinovac, and other countries. So how do you, I know you talked about this in some papers that you publish in some articles about the efficacy of this data and the statistical noise as you put it. So how do you go by filtering through all this and what is what should we be looking for and what's the best way to go about that? Yeah, so we have this challenge that we have totally separate studies, separate trials that are evaluating different vaccines and we have to kind of make some comparisons. I mean, really what the FDA is looking for is they're looking vaccine by vaccine and they're seeing, does that vaccine meet the parameters that we've specified such that it merits authorization? And that's looking at the safety of the vaccine. It's also looking, um, does the vaccine uh, have an efficacy of at least uh, 50% and they want to make sure that there's enough certainty around that so that, you know, the vaccine might, we don't want something where the vaccine efficacy might be way too low. So we want to be pretty um, confident about the, the efficacy. And so they're kind of looking vaccine by vaccine and not making these direct head to head comparisons. But, you know, but in reality, we're interested in kind of comparing because we want to know, uh, well, it, well, certainly countries need to make decisions about kind of what they're going to use. And yeah, for that, you know, I think about what sort of variants might be circulating at the time. We've seen that at, with the rise of certain variants, the efficacy may drop. So you want to see like what was sort of circulating at the time. Um, you also want to look at the, um, the populations that were included, you know, the age range, um, whether people had a lot of different comorbidities. And so, yeah, those are some of the things that I look at to make comparisons. I just wanted to follow up with a quick question on that. So from a virology standpoint, can you be infectious without being infected yourself? And how does the mRNA vaccines protect us differently than being infected by COVID? Right. So in order to be infectious, you have to be yourself infected and then that the virus replicates I can replicate in sort of different areas and replicate in your nose or it can, you know, when, when people experience severe disease, it's because the virus is replicating in their lungs. So, so you need to be infected in order to be infectious to others. The, the mRNA vaccines, they're eliciting an immune response by your body is sort of seeing this version of the spike protein. And so you develop an antibody sort of memory such that when you may be exposed to the virus, then either you are able to prevent that sort of infection from taking hold, or you can at least have a quicker immune response, you know, once you're infected so that you're less likely to get actually sick. So, you know, if you can prevent the virus from moving down into your lungs, then that's one of the ways that we think a vaccine is preventing you from getting severe disease. Yeah, it seems like We've started to round the corner and see a little bit of the light at the end of the tunnel, thankfully. But 
there's a lot of work to be done, obviously, partially in just getting enough people vaccinated, reaching herd immunity, going back to normal. But also we've seen a lot of issues in the equity in distribution of vaccine rollout. And I know that this is something that you've been very vocal about on Twitter and in some of your papers. We've seen that marginalized communities have somewhere around twice the rates of cases and deaths and around half the vaccination rates of more affluent and whiter demographics. So how do we prioritize essential workers and people at risk and you know tend to the situation at hand while also paying attention to social disparities and making sure that all of these vaccines go to use and go to use equitably? There, you know, that's a it's a really tricky issue. And there have been a lot of committees, separate committees that have spent a lot of time thinking about this, the National Academies and the CDC and there was a lot of thought and care put into some of these prioritization decisions. And I mean, we know that the biggest risk for severe disease is, is being an older adult. And it, there's a really strong gradient by age uh, for who's getting hospitalized and dying with older people being at much higher risk. And so, you know, that's why a lot of the decisions have focused around prioritizing by age, but that's not the only consideration. There, the other you know, consideration is that the people who are most likely to be infected that are not necessarily the older people. So there's risk in terms of severe disease, but there's also people who are at highest risk of actually getting getting infected. And so and so that's where we're seeing sort of these these huge disparities. And we also want to consider just having a functioning society. And so that, you know, is part of the reason why healthcare workers making sure that healthcare workers are protected so that they can keep hospitals running. Um, so that was another reason why um, healthcare workers were prioritized. And so, yeah, I mean, there, it's a balance between sort of what is kind of easiest to do so we can sort of achieve something quickly and what is most equitable uh, in the long run. And it does require a lot more work to reach different populations. And what I've been seeing just coming out of the Biden administration is that they're talking about how they're seeing uh, much lower vaccination rates in you know certain minority communities. And so they want to basically readjust and say, like, how what strategies do we need to do differently? Is it is it a communication strategy? Is it a messaging strategy? Is it actually getting people to go out knocking door to door and to get people in for, for vaccines? And basically, unless you're putting in the extra work to make sure something is equitable, it, it won't be. So just being the easy thing, people just tend to default to systems that are that are just unfair. So, you know, thankfully, I think the, the government is doing a lot of work here to sort of figure out how they can readjust. And they did this also with the clinical trials. Actually, the the Operation Warp Speed was overseeing all of the vaccine clinical trials actually forced some of the companies to slow down because they didn't have enough representation from a certain minority communities, um, um, Black Americans. And they so they actually asked them to slow down to make sure that they could enroll more people. And that's in the long run, you know, it takes more work, but that's for the best because that's the data we need to support actually the broader broader use of the vaccine. So just being willing to readjust. So speaking about vaccines and COVID and looking a little bit more into the future, what are some like unknowns that you would most like to know? I know being an expert, you've, you've getting around to like all the crevices and all the minute details of it, but what are some things that are, you know, what kind of data affects your outlook or what recommendations do you have? So what, what exactly do you think that you could expound more upon now or expand more upon now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so specifically I have some questions about vaccines 
and you know I think we want to know how well these vaccines are going to work against these different variants. There's the variants that are circulating now. There's the B117. There's the one from the UK, which seems to be more transmissible and uh, more lethal, but seems to be susceptible to the vaccine. So, you know, the vaccine seems to work similarly well. But then there are other mutations that have sort of a functional difference that may make them uh, better at evading the immune system. And so we're seeing some evidence of people getting reinfected, and we're also seeing some hit in vaccine efficacy, that vaccine efficacy is dropping a little bit. So we want to know kind of exactly how much the vaccines are being impacted by that, and then also, you know, just whatever future variants and mutations may emerge and how those will impact how well the vaccines are doing. There are big questions about how durable the vaccines are. So, you know, that's a thing right now as we're thinking about, are we going to need booster doses? And, are, you know, what just, just by the nature of how these trials were set up, they only follow people for so long. And so we don't know, we know that the vaccines work very well, at least for a couple months, but we don't know how quickly, quickly that drops off. And so that's a very open question that will impact our future strategy, how, how aggressively we'll need to, you know, either give booster doses or, or something else. It, it, it impacts the outlook. So those are some of the, the big things that come to mind. Yeah. So obviously a lot of your outlook and policies will depend on research that we don't have yet and data that will be coming in the next few months. But given what you know now, if you could flash back a year ago and you were in charge of the pandemic playbook, what would you have done differently? And what are we actively doing to prepare for the next pandemic? Yeah, you know, we've done a lot. So I guess looking back a year ago, I mean, I think about what the CDC is capable of and what there's a lot more that I think the CDC could have done. I think there were, you know, political challenges. and But the CDC has just a very strong, capable group that is able to sort of synthesize the data, provide insights, and provide them in a way that is very usable for governments, usable for people, and sort of just the role of that communication and just having guidance on, you know, these sort of everyday decisions and policies that that everyone's trying to make. Besides, you know, instead what we saw was sort of states working very independently and just trying to scramble a little bit. And they could have used more of that federal support. And uh, yeah, and that, that comes back to, to sort of the data. I think a lot about data and just that we had just not as much transparency in the data, not as much accessibility in the data. The data were not standardized, but we're seeing a lot of tools coming online now that just lets more people more people have eyes on these sort of local results and can make these comparisons and build their models and just giving more people access to information i think is very powerful so um i wish you know looking back that's clearly was a big gap so i know that it's kind of hard for me myself personally to imagine life without a mask to be in the same room as a big group of people to be back in lecture halls so i guess what is up next for us? I mean, how, how will last year impact society post-pandemic? We're talking about, like I said, lecture rooms or travel on airplanes or when it's safe to take off our masks and be around other people. And on top of that, like, is there a timeline at all of when we will reach herd immunity that, or is it too early to say for things like that? Yeah, the timeline, it's harder to say. I guess it depends on, it depends on the, well, the vaccines are just a huge, huge tool. I think it has the potential to get us a really a good bit of 
of the way, um, but it's going to need to be supported by other sort of ongoing interventions, at least until we can get the numbers down. Right now, there's just way too much transmission. But uh, yeah, you know, it's an it's it's a question. Yeah, I talked about this with a Washington Post reporter, and it was sort of like, yeah, going back to normal, and what does that mean? And I, the way that I like to think about it is just sort of little wins and just the gradual accumulation of little, little, getting little things back and, you know, having these sort of smaller dinner parties or having, or, you know, being able to get together with, with family or have events or just, I don't know, taking little vacations and things like that and, and just sort of building up to it. It may take a while before we're comfortable gathering in huge groups and we may view things very differently, at least, in, at least until the numbers suggest that we can you know, that the threat is different. Vaccination will go a long way towards that, though, I think, in terms of individual decision making, like, if you um, are are well protected, then you can make very different decisions, I think, just the calculus, the math of what, you know, what you're willing to do, I think, really, really changes. But, you know, some things probably will change permanently. I, I, you know, I have to imagine that, well, mask wearing has become obviously a lot more normalized. And for people who are, have a cold or something, I would hope that now it'd probably be a good thing if people start wearing masks when they have a cold. <laughs> so there's some stuff that I think will persist. I think some of the, we've also seen how much we can kind of do online virtually. And I think some of that will persist too. But, you know, we all want to get back to a, a much greater level of normalcy than, than we're seeing now. And that will happen. It just will take time. There's a concept of disruption that I think is very interesting. And there was some study uh, when the London tube shut down for a little bit, uh, or certain routes had shut down for a little bit. There was some, you know, uh, for construction or something. And people had to find new ways home. And actually a good chunk of people found a different way home and stuck with it. And you would think commuters, they probably know the best way to get home, but about 10% of them or something found a different way. And so you know, sometimes when we have these big changes, these big disruption, disruptive events, we, the silver lining is we can find better things out of it. And so I think about that example a lot <laughs> and we're just, we're learning a lot. And so, and, and some of it, you know, some of it will be good, useful lessons. So there's been a lot of, I guess, changing gears a little bit to the social aspect of this. There's been a spotlight on public health and you've emerged as kind of a hero and an icon figure gathered a large social media following as well. I mean, your work has been very, very profound in this effort. So how has that changed the field for you personally and like your relation to it and this research as of late in the past uh, year or two? Yeah, well, thank you for those nice words. Yeah, it's been a weird year (laughs) in a lot of ways because I've been part of this fairly small community of infectious disease researchers, specifically people focused on emerging infectious diseases. And, you know, our work has just taken on a different role because everyone, because it's affecting everyone's lives in a different way. So everyone's invested in the insights. And so, you know, my life has changed a lot just in terms of my responsibilities and the things that I do. And I do spend a fair amount of time engaging in kind of outreach activities. And I I spend a fair amount of time talking to reporters. And I see that as a a service and sort of helping explain and helping people understand. And the same with Twitter. And sort of, I realized that I have this, this set of insights that I've gained from, you know, working on something for, for 10 years. And, and you, you just, 
there are things that when I read stuff that I have certain thoughts uh, that I process things a particular way. And I realize that people may be interested in those and then I can share those. It's actually really not that hard for me to just tweet something out and just, but people, people seem to really appreciate that. And I also really like to teach. And so it, that's sort of, there's this interesting intersection between research and teaching that things like Twitter or going on podcasts or, you know, that I can share that, that set of insights. What's changed for me the most, well, besides just the, yeah, the, the time and the, the sort of the craziness, but that, that my professional network has grown a lot because we've all kind of banded together. <laughs> Everyone's just trying to figure everything out. And it's really interesting on Twitter, you know, people kind of just send each other messages and like, did you see this paper? What do you think about this? Or did you, you know, we kind of tagging each other in questions where there's a back and forth. And I've made some wonderful friends and, and people I really, I knew their names, but I didn't know them. And then now we're like, real buddies. So that's something that I am happy that uh, I'll look forward to quieter times, but I'm looking forward to being able to see, meet a lot of these people sort of in person because they've really become friends. Oh, well, Dr. Dean, we thank you for your service. And we know that as a celebrity, you have a lot of responsibilities now added to your plate and you're a little pressed for time. So while we would love to talk to you for hours, we have one final question that we would like to squeeze in. So We've, we've kind of all been on the same page here about, you know, we should wear masks, we should get vaccinated if we can, COVID is real, COVID is happening, we should trust the scientific community and the medical process. But as we know, not everyone is on the same page about that. So we were curious how you personally and how you'd recommend that others handle conversations with the following two groups of people who are very different groups of people. So the first group are the COVID deniers, the people who refuse to wear masks, think that the whole situation is overhyped, refuse to get vaccinated. I, th I think we're, we're well familiar with this group. The second group, though, is, again, very different. That is a group that has a justified mistrust of the American medical system because as people of color, they have been marginalized and mistreated for decades, looking back to the Tuskegee Institute experiment and well beyond that. How, how does this, how do you handle going about conversations with those two very different groups of people? Yeah, so that's a major challenge, you know, and communication is such an important part of, of public health. And I guess one of the first lessons I would mention is that what we've learned with years of, you know, public health research and with uh, with sexually transmitted infections in particular is that shaming doesn't work. So, you know, you have to approach people with empathy and figure out their motivations and figure out what they're looking for and, and try and identify some some common ground. Yeah, but the, uh, you know, particularly with marginalized communities and people who have distrust of the medical system, I mean, I think that, that there's, um, there's a big role for hearing from someone you trust. And so so it's kind of like leading the leaders and, and, you know, connecting with church groups, connecting with local leaders. And, and that's just one of the big things that we've learned is that right, hearing from someone you trust. And so I know there's some wonderful black doctors on Twitter and they talk about like this, this initiative set up, which is like a group of medical experts who are reviewing the data and actually making recommendations to their communities about what they, you know, the evidence that they see with COVID vaccines and what they recommend. And I think, you know, 
just having a lot of different types of messengers, a lot of different people um, so that that everyone can be hearing from someone they trust. And so, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's right. Human behavior is such a huge part of how we can, you know, slow down this infectious disease. And so every little bit helps. So every little bit of we can do to sort of improve the messaging. So it, it you know, hits, hits a note with people um, really helps. Thank you. I think that was a, an important message for people to hear. Yeah. So while we are wrapping up, are there any final messages that you have for audience members of this podcast who are primarily UF students, but also you know, the public at large? Is there a message you'd like to share with them? Well, selfishly, I mean, I think it's really an opportunity to explain to people the value of public health research and the, the work that we do. And I hope that it does motivate some young people to consider careers in, in this type of area. Um, you know, we lose some of our best minds to, uh, to go make Facebook ads. <laughs> and there are a lot of other paths and a lot of op- other opportunities to make an impact. Um, and so I just think that uh, public health, specifically biostatistics, is just a fantastic career area. And I would encourage people to, to look into it. Yeah. And I mean, it's really, we really appreciate how, how much you can find the silver lining in this too. Like you said earlier, um, people may have colds in the future. Wearing masks may help with that. How much power we've seen in virtual meetings in settings like this, where we don't have to be in the same room to do a podcast like this. And I mean, I guess the empathy and appreciating, understanding the other side as well. And I think that's helped a lot. And it's been very prompting, I think, as of late in stimulating conversation and finding uh, new solutions to problems that we never really thought of. So we really appreciate all the work you've done in that regard, all the work you've done in the research. Um, It's been a pleasure having you on our episode. Zach, if you don't have any more questions, I think we're good to go for a sign off. But like we said to the audience, as always, if you have any suggestions, any questions. By the way, Dr. Dean, is there a best way if anybody has any questions or wants to hear about more what you have to say? Is there any way for them to reach you or read more about what you have? I'm on Twitter at Natalie X Dean. Tweeting away. You can find me there. Awesome. Thank you. And then shoot us an email at gatorologies at gmail.com if you have any suggestions for more researchers. But as always, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.